Uh, but we have to understand how much we need Him first. And so let me invite you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Romans chapter 1. We're continuing our study through this letter from the Apostle Paul. And uh, there was a gentleman who wasn't feeling well, and he went to the doctor. The doctor looked him over and ran a bunch of tests. And he said, I'll tell you what, you come back next week, and I'll give you the results of your tests. So the man goes back the next week, and the doctor says, okay, I've got some good news, some bad news. The man says, okay, God, uh, okay, doc, give it to me first. Uh, what's the good news? The doctor says, uh, the good news is you've got two weeks to live. The man says, that's the good news. Oh, you're kidding me. I hate to hear what's, what's the bad news. And the doctor says, the bad news is I should have told you that last week. So it just goes to show you sometimes you don't appreciate how good the good news is until you understand how bad the bad news is first. And that's exactly where Paul is going in this letter in Romans. In fact, he's going to show us today that we should let the justness of God's wrath drive us to trust in God's saving grace. Once we understand how bad the bad news is first, then that should lead us, it should drive us to the arms of Jesus Christ and the grace of God for the forgiveness of our sins. Let me invite you to stand if you're able this morning. So we read from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. I'll be starting at verse 18, and these words were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come into your presence this morning in Jesus' name. We thank you for the privilege of being here and for the Sunday school hour and the time of fellowship and study. God, thank you for the time of encouragement that we have enjoyed this morning, the time to lift up our, our voices in praise and adoration the opportunity that we had to worship you through giving tithes and offerings. And now, God, we worship you by coming to your holy word, the word that you and your grace have given to us. And this word shows us, first of all, God, that there is bad news. Because of sin, there is judgment. But, Lord, your word also shows us that there is good news. There is hope in Christ through his cross and resurrection. So God, we come together today expecting to hear from you. And so God, open our minds to understand the word, open our hearts to receive it and obey it. May Jesus be glorified in our lives through the preaching of his word. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. 
Thank you. You may be seated. As we have already worked our way through the first 17 verses of Romans, we have seen that Paul is eager to go to, to, to Rome. He is he's ready to go there so that he might preach the gospel in Rome. And he's told us that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's, he's ready to preach it. He's eager to preach it because he trusts in the power of the gospel. He believes that through the preaching of God's word, souls are saved and lives are changed. So Paul's ready to go there and preach that saving message of Jesus. Now today, it seems like he's shifting gears as he goes from his hope in the gospel to, to this bad news that he is, that he is, he is drawing, this, this, this bleak picture of the human condition. But we see in verse 18, the first word there is for. It's a connecting word. So what he's about to say is directly tied into what he has just said. He has said in verse 17, For in it, in the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. How, can, how we as sinners can be made right with God, how we can have a right relationship with the God of heaven, that is revealed to us in the gospel. But then Paul says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed. So what we see in this text is Paul is connecting for us the justifying righteousness of God in verse 17 with the judging righteousness in verse 18. In other words, Paul said in verse 17, the gospel saves. And then in verse 18, he's showing us why we need to be saved. And he spends the next couple of chapters really outlining that for us, that all humanity needs to be saved. And therefore, the gospel is good news because it does and it can and it will save those who come to Christ in faith. But first of all, in painting this, this picture for us, Paul describes the revelation of God's wrath in verse 18. Revelation. This, this graciously comes to light in the gospel. Remember, verse 18 is connected to 17. The gospel is revealed. The good news is revealed. Being right with God, how to be saved, is revealed in the gospel, but so too is the bad news revealed to us. The wrath of God. You know, that's not a popular thing today, is it? It's not something that, that you hear a lot talked about other than sometimes some some fringe elements of Christianity that, that seem to enjoy the wrath of God without bringing in the grace of God but we need to balance these attributes of God God's grace and God's love are his in his fullness but fullness and so too is his wrath in his fullness both attributes together this is an Old Testament doctrine most people can see that and understand that but it's also a New Testament doctrine the wrath of God is described in several passages in the New Testament and there is one here for us today the wrath of God now it's not some sort of uncontrolled emotional outburst we tend to think of someone's wrath and they just become overcome with anger and so they lash out uncontrollably that is not what we're talking about here that's not a biblical view of God's wrath 
But what it is is this. It is God's settled response, His predetermined and settled response to evil. How does God feel about sin? We know in the Bible God is holy. He is holy, He is perfect, He is righteous, He is pure, and because God is holy, He must hate sin. If God does not hate sin, He is not holy. If He is not holy, then the Bible is completely untrustworthy. But because of His holiness, God must hate sin. He must judge sin. He must have wrath and hatred for sin. And that is where Paul starts here for us today. He speaks about the reality of judgment. The reality of judgment. Whether people want to hear this or not, there is a judgment. There is a right and a wrong. There is a heaven and a hell. And whether people want to hear that, we all desperately need to hear it and believe it. The reality of judgment, as Paul speaks about the wrath of God, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so we see its presence on earth. Its presence. He says, it is revealed. That means it's always been there and it comes to light. It is, it is shown. It is displayed. It is described. We now can know this because it is revealed from heaven heaven the word is revealed is a passive verb that means someone is revealing it and it's revealed from heaven that means it is God from heaven in his holy dwelling place he is revealing his wrath against sin it's also a present tense verb it's not just something that when people die and go to hell or when judgment day comes, then the wrath of God is on display. No, Paul says the wrath of God is revealed present tense. It is being revealed right now. It is on display. And how do we know that? Well, Paul unpacks that for us as this chapter unfolds. But suffice to say right now, Paul is saying the wrath of God is presently being shown on earth from heaven to earth the reality of judgment its presence on earth but also its permanence in eternity now anyone would know from a basic reading of scripture that there is an afterlife that there is a judgment that there is a heaven and God's glory awaiting those who trust in Jesus Christ there is also a hell. There is also an eternal judgment and a place awaiting those who refuse to come to Jesus in faith. The judgment of God, the wrath of God is present on earth now and it will be permanent for eternity to those who do not surrender their lives to Jesus. The reality of judgment in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven but then he speaks about the recipients of judgment. It's against, the wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. That means that, that anyone who is 
ungodly, anyone who is unrighteous, the wrath of God is against them. Now these are two words that are, that are really synonymous with one another, but we can unpack it a little bit like this. The ungodliness means a lack of reverence towards God. A lack of respect towards God and the things of God. It's ungodliness. Unrighteousness means a lack of a relationship with God. Because we are unrighteous, then ungodly deeds take place. And Paul says anyone in that category, anyone who has any kind of a lack of reverence for God, anyone who has a lack of a relationship with God, the wrath of God is revealed against them. Anyone in that category. Now, as Paul unpacks this even more in Romans, we come to understand that's all of us. Because of our sin nature, because of our rebellion against God, because of our, our inherent self-centeredness, all of us fall in that category. The wrath of God is against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, and that's us. That's everybody. That's Gentile and Jew we will be seeing in the next few weeks. Doesn't matter who you are. Because of your ungodliness and unrighteousness, the wrath of God is against you in that. The recipients of judgment. And then Paul says the reason for judgment. You know, how, how can God judge us for this? In verse 18, he says, the unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they suppress the truth of judgment. I mean, they, they just take it and just bury it somewhere. They just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to, don't want to think about it. They, and they sure don't want the wrath of God and the judgment of God to anyway change the way they think or feel or live. They'd rather just suppress it and hide it and just lock it away somewhere and not have to deal with it. We can think about it like this. They would rather, rather than suppress the flesh and its desires and its urges, they would rather suppress the truth of God that speaks against the flesh. The human inclination is never to drift towards God. It is always to drift away from God. And because of that, men would rather suppress that truth than deal with it and be transformed by it. Jesus even speaks of the same thing in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. We, most of us know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him will not perish, they have everlasting life. And we're like, yes, we love that. The love of God, the good news of God. But then Jesus even speaks towards the need that we have for this love. Verse 19 of John 3, he says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and rather suppress the truth, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The truth of God says that we are sinners deserving judgment and, and we'd rather suppress that. The human nature would rather not think that. We'd rather bury our heads in the sand 
and hide from it. But Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that. And we say, well, what about Jesus? John chapter 3, at the end of verse 36, we read these words, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God, same word, the wrath of God abides, lives, stays, remains on him. A refusal to have faith in Jesus Christ means the wrath of God remains on you. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through life knowing that God's wrath is just living on me and in me. That's what Paul says. It's what the Gospel of John says. The revelation of God's wrath. We see the reality of judgment, the recipients of judgment. That's all of us who reject Christ and the reason because we would rather suppress God's truth than be changed by it. As you think about this, this dark picture that Paul is painting here, it kind of reminds me of when you go to the jewelry store and, and you, you buy your, your significant other a, a diamond ring and uh, you, you get it in that little box and you open that box, what color is that material on the inside? Is it, is it white? You know, if it was, you would not be able to see the beauty and the light reflecting off that lovely rock there. But because it's a black backdrop, suddenly that diamond really pops. And the light reflects off of it, and it looks much more glorious because you can truly see the beauty of that diamond. Folks, that's what's happening in Paul's expression of the good news here. Paul puts the, the black backdrop on it there to show us this is bad news. The wrath of God is being revealed. And in that backdrop of the bad news, then the beauty of the good news of Jesus shines even brighter. He shows our need for the saving righteousness of God by showing us first the judging righteousness of God. The revelation of God's wrath then Paul goes further and speaks about the rejection of God's worth. In other words, God deserves the glory, yet He has not given the glory He rightfully deserves. We see, first of all, His glory is displayed to man. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says the worth of God is clearly shown. It's clearly on display in, 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 in different ways. First of all, there's the internal witness to God's glory. Verse 19, Paul says, because, remember that, that's a connecting word. He says, men would rather suppress the truth of God, therefore God's wrath is being revealed because, because this, that which is known about God, everything that we can should know about God, that which is known about God is evident within them. Because God made it evident to them. It means God has hardwired every single one of us, as we just said earlier, with a need, an internal need, a desire to worship. And God has put a hole in our hearts that only He can fill. And God has given an internal witness of Himself to the human heart. There is an internal witness. There's also an external witness. 
He says, God revealed it, God made it evidence to them for, because, verse 20, since the creation of the world, ever since the garden, His invisible attributes, I mean, things about God that we just can't see with the human eyes, Paul says his eternal power, his divine nature, these are things we can't tangibly see, but we see the evidence of these things. His power, his divinity, these invisible attributes have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood through that what, which, what has been made. So in other words, when we can look at the created order we can see the handiwork of God. We can see the, the creative wisdom of God. These things exist and they are pointing to an intelligent designer. We can look at creation on the outside. We can look to the human conscience on the inside and we can put the pieces together and they point to the evidence and they testify that there is a God in heaven and we should be accountable to him. God has made this evident, and men would rather take that truth and suppress it and do their own thing, because if they don't suppress it, they're accountable to it. And the sinful human heart wants to do its own thing. It does not want to be accountable and responsible to any higher authority, especially when it says, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. The human heart rejects that it's because of sin but we see the internal witness the external witness and the universal witness in verse 20 he says since the creation of the world his invisible attributes eternal power divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that what has been made so that the result is this they are without excuse not to believe in God, not to see His divine power, not to see His eternal power, divine nature. You have no excuse. Mankind has no excuse not to believe in God and submit to Him. Paul says they are without excuse. The general, general revelation of God, that which is seen by everybody in all creation, that which is experienced in every human heart, the general revelation of God is sufficient to condemn every single human being to hell. There is enough of God revealed in creation and in the human conscience. There is enough of God revealed to condemn and judge everyone. They have no excuse. You have no excuse for not believing in and surrendering to God and trusting in Him. No excuse. His glory is clearly displayed. But also we see His glory is discarded by man. Even though it's displayed, man discards it. He does away with it. Verse 21, he says, For, you see, the Paul, just the logical sequence of his arguments, this whole letter is that way. Paul says, Because, it's been clearly made. They have no excuse because they do this. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Because even though God has clearly displayed His glory in creation, 
Even though God has spoken and revealed himself in the human heart, even though that's the case, Paul says they choose not to honor him, not to revere him, not to glorify him, or even give thanks. How utterly shameful that is to be created by God to be, to be created in His image, to have a living soul that lives for all eternity, to be given life, to be given existence, to be given oxygen to breathe, to be given uh, biological systems that work in harmony to give you life, to enable you to do the things you do, for God to give you loving relationships and people that care about you, God to put put food and provide everything you need and then you even refuse to believe he exists or give him any kind of thanks or gratitude how utterly shameful and rebellious Paul says the glory of God is revealed but mankind discards it instead of worshiping the creator and the sustainer he says but they became futile in their speculations, in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. So Paul is getting at the root of this very problem here. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just, well, these people are just too dumb. You know, who wouldn't believe in God? The issue is this. The foolish heart is darkened. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The human heart is sinful. The human heart, the Bible says, is wicked beyond all measure. And the human heart wants what it wants, refuses to submit to God. Their speculations are futile because their hearts are darkened. A failure to believe in God, a failure, a, a failure to accept the gospel, it's a heart matter. It's a spiritual matter. It's a matter of transformation on the inside. You're not going to argue anybody intellectually into the faith. Now, the faith does not mean you abandon intellectualism. There is enough there to lead anyone to that conclusion that there is a God. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of faith. It's not just facts. It's faith. That means the human heart must be awakened and transformed. And the gospel does that. Paul says, it's the power of God for salvation. Because the human heart needs to be transformed. Because it's dark, it needs the light of the gospel. The human heart is so depraved. It would rather take the glory of God, discard it, and then displace it. And that's what Paul gets to in verse 22 and 23. The worship that God deserves is then channeled elsewhere. Instead of giving God the glory he rightfully deserves, it's given away. Paul says in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. He says a, a refusal to believe in God, a refusal to worship God, it makes no sense. It's illogical to know that you exist because someone made you. You have life because someone has given it to you. You have everything you have because it's been given to you by God. And then not honor Him and not give Him thanks. 
Paul says, thinking, professing to be wise. They became fools. Anyone who thinks that they can come to a knowledge that separates them from God and think that they have any hope in eternity is foolish. Paul says his glory is displaced by man. It's sinful idiocy, first of all. To take what God deserves and not give it to him, it's foolish. It's idiotic. But the human heart is so sinful, it'd rather do that. We're not saying people are stupid. We're saying spiritually they lack what they need to give God what he deserves. Sinful idiocy of the fallen human heart. And then we see the sinful idolatry. Calvin once said the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart just wants to create something to worship Rather than giving it to God as he deserves, man channels that elsewhere and worships the creation instead of the creator. Verse 23, in exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, the God who cannot die, the God who cannot be conquered, the God who will not ever go away, the incorruptible God, they exchange His glory for what? An image. Something tangible, something I can see, something I can touch, something I can control, something I can manipulate, something that I can somehow add to and make it so that I have part in this. So that my worship experience is in some ways driven by me exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in what? The form of corruptible man. Rather than worshiping the God who created man, instead of worshiping man. Makes no sense, does it? But nobody ever said the human heart makes sense. Exchange the glory of God for the image of man, and birds, four-footed animals, you can see the ladder just descending here. The depravity of the human condition. Worshipping man, birds, four-footed animals, even to the point of worshipping crawling creatures. The human heart would rather worship these things, glorify these things, than glorify God. Because God holds you accountable. God desires holiness. God desires complete surrender. And the human heart's too selfish and stubborn to do that. You might say, well, you know what? I'm not into statues. I ain't worshiping uh, four-footed creatures. I ain't worshiping birds. You know, I'm, not, I'm not bowing down before some graven image. That's not me. Okay. What about money? What about power? What about sex? What about material goods? What about your selfish Pride. Because I tell you, you are worshiping something. Everybody worships something. The question is, what is it? Because the human heart craves and desires to worship. That's the way we have been programmed. But the program has a bug in it. And that bug, instead of making you, leading you to worship the one who deserves it, you send that worship and that glory elsewhere 
And that's what Paul's getting at. Every human being has taken this truth of God and buried it somewhere deep so that their human heart can chase and do what it wants to do. And the end result is the judgment and the wrath of God. Sounds hopeless. It sounds like sin nature has twisted and distorted us beyond recognition and there's no hope. But again, Paul is painting the backdrop of God's judgment and the reason and, and, and the justness of His wrath so that you and I will be driven to trust in, believe in the grace of God in Christ Jesus. To believe the good news and how good it is, you must first believe the bad news. And this is a foundational point of Paul's gospel. He spent the first 17 verses of Romans kind of outlining his flow of thought, his introduction, his thesis, and then he starts in verse 18 through the end of chapter 3 speaking about the wrath of God and the sinful human condition and, and God's justness in condemning everyone because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then following that, he begins to paint the picture of the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. So we think about the human condition and where every single one of us stands before God in judgment. I pose to you a hypothetical question, and this is one theologians and philosophers have wrestled with for a long time. Suppose there, hypothetically speaking, you know, these things, uh, we know they can't always happen this way, but hypothetically, suppose someone gives birth to a child at sea, there's a shipwreck, everyone dies, the child washes up on an island by himself, and somehow through providence or whatever, grows to adulthood all by themselves. So you take a human being raised completely separate from anyone else all of his life, grows up, lives, does his thing, eventually dies, stands before God in judgment, is he going to heaven or hell? And most people would say, well, he has to go to heaven because God is good and because he doesn't, this man doesn't know. But what does Paul say in this text before us today? Is this man ignorant of God? No. The invisible attributes have been clearly shown through what has been made. God has made it evident within him. This man knows there's a God, and this God deserves to be worshipped. He's not ignorant. We say, well, he's innocent. He hasn't, he hasn't worshipped other things. He hasn't hated his fellow man. Heck, he's not had any kind of dealings with anybody all of his entire life. Is this man innocent? Paul says, no. The human heart would rather suppress the truth of God and exchange his glory he rightfully deserves and then worship the created world. This man is going to worship something. But his human fallen heart is so wicked, it would rather worship the birds and the beasts on that island than to bow down and worship the one true and living God in heaven. 
This man's not ignorant. He's not innocent. This man is condemned before God. Why does that matter? First of all, it matters for this reason. This man's important because he reflects your condition. So I didn't grow up on an island isolated by myself. No, you didn't. But you're in the same boat he's in. God's revealed himself from heaven. His invisible attributes have been clearly displayed in your life. You're not ignorant. Even though God has revealed himself to you, the human heart would rather suppress that and worship the creation rather than the creator. You're not innocent either. This man stands condemned before God. How much more so do you? If you sat through sermon after sermon hearing the good news of Jesus after gospel after gospel after gospel and then trample underfoot the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ, you are not innocent. You stand condemned. So understanding this man's situation sheds light on your condition. Are you saved by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus? Trusting in His death on the cross for your sin your rebellion, your suppression, your filtered worship elsewhere. He died for all of that. God deserves your glory. He has created you to worship Him, and you have not worshipped Him fully as He deserves. That's the bottom line of Paul's argument. It gives you a greater appreciation for God's grace in your life, number one. Number two, I think it ought to give us a greater sense of urgency. Because while there might not be people living in isolation and dying in isolation on an island somewhere, there are people that have never heard the name of Jesus in our world. There are people that one day they're going to die and stand before God and they are going to be justly condemned by the wrath of God for all eternity because they have not worshipped Him as He deserves. If we believe that a man on that island could die and be saved without hearing the name of Jesus, then why in the world do we waste our money giving it to international missions like Lottie Moon? Because if people don't hear about Jesus, they're going to go to heaven. Then the, you know what the best thing we could do as a church? Just shut up. Don't tell anybody about Jesus. If we don't tell anybody about Jesus, they're all going to heaven, right? But if we tell people about Jesus, uh-oh, they got a choice to make, and now they might not go to heaven. You see how foolish that sounds? It's Paul's argument in this, in this chapter. Everybody needs to hear the gospel, or else their human heart cannot be transformed. Their darkened heart will not be brought to the light apart from the saving message of Jesus. It's the power of God because a human heart desperately needs that power. Without it, there's no hope. There's only hell. That's the condition we find ourselves in. The good news of Jesus has the power to awaken and save anyone because we all desperately need the gospel. So what Paul is saying to you and I today, realize your sin and receive your Savior got to start by admitting your need for him trusting in the death of Jesus committing yourself to him that is what this message of the wrath of God ought to drive each and every one of us to do let's pray together oh God in heaven you 